It is a circle dance around the center on the page. In the center is the written in ink word cloud, and here are the words in the ring around that center. White, rising, precipitate, evaporate, change in state. Already there's assonance and rhyme. The words turn at and shrouds and heaven, and then they curve up to carrier, messenger, and breath. In this case, the circle is not unbroken. There is a gap, as if to allow for breath in and breath out, perhaps. Photographer John Paul Capanigro plays with words here, and as he writes them, he hears them. Precipitate, evaporate, change in state, in free association, and play. Seeking connections and new directions. So we'll take a cue from John Paul and join in the creative play, drawing on the title of a series of his photographs he calls Sounding. Sounding, a rich word that will surprise us. We think perhaps of a bell that sounds and think of resonance, and also of the sonar that sounds the depths of the sea, the vibrations sent out that touches and returns, taking the measure of, and that's just as Henry David Thoreau did in sounding the depths of Walden Pond with a fishing line and weight, using a musical concept of measure as a metaphor to sync up the good, the beautiful, and true revealing for Thoreau the true measure of the universe, as Laura Zebor puts it. And when we listen to John Paul as he talks about his work, we may well come to see that in his work he is sounding the universe, taking its true measure. As Laura Darrow Walls says of Thoreau, not so much taking nature up into spirit as drawing nature and spirit into the sweetest union through the agency of the self, who is and inhabits both. And that speaks exactly to what his publisher, David Godin, writes of as John Paul's listening eye, his listening eye, one ready to receive, one eager to probe, one meticulous in its selection, and one that isn't looking at the surface of things or listening for the obvious, but seeking something far deeper and more fundamental, something elemental, his listening eye. To put it baldly, says Godin, these are images that sing, that resonate and startle, that provide us with harmonies and melodies that stay with us even when we would prefer to be unmoved and that serve to remind us how all art strives to find the universal in the particular, the clear, clean essence of what is and will always remain fundamental, essential, and enduring. We learn that John Paul Capanigro is a pioneer among artists working in digital media. He consults with corporations that build the tools he uses, including Adobe, Apple, Canon, Kodak, and Sony, and he is a member of the Photoshop Hall of Fame. His works are exhibited internationally 
and contained in many public collections, including those at the Smithsonian Institution. We'll find landscapes within landscapes and process, featuring many aspects of the work of John Paul at the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre through May 13th, a two-part exhibition here because Heather Sincavage, gallery director, came to know John Paul and his images when she was a gallery director in Maine, where he lives, even though he leads travel adventures around the world to help those who take part creatively make deeper connections with nature and themselves. Eminent photographer John Paul Cabanicro and Sordoni gallery director Heather Sincavage paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk about the adventuring John Paul does on so many levels. Did you just get back from Antarctica? I did, yeah. Did you really? You surely discover something new every time you go, but are you more worried? <laughs> um, that's exactly what I am. I tend to discount my individual observations because I've been on the peninsula, which is this tiny little edge of the you know fingernail of this immense white continent. And I've only been around 57 years, and I've only been down there since 2005. And this is a huge story that needs to be told by many different people throughout the generations. So when people ask me, you know, have you seen signs? Before I would say, yeah, you know, some of the bird colonies have definitely moved south, but I'm really learning that from the ornithologist. You know, did, did you see some changes in ice? Well, that could have been seasonal variation. Again, you should really be listening to the glaciologists. <laughs> but this time, every single glacier that we visited, Paradise Bay, Half Moon Island, Nico Harbor, felt like their chest had caved in, the edge had receded back. There was less sea ice than I've ever seen on all 13 voyages. It actually allowed us to get into an extraordinary place called the Gullet, where it opens up these channels and few people ever get to see. And people on our boat got to do their polar plunge south of the Antarctic Circle in the Gullet. Now, that's, that's a first for, you know, so few people got to do that. But it wasn't until I got back and read the article in The Guardian that three out of the last five years have had record low levels of sea ice in Antarctica, and this is a current trend that I really said, you know, what I saw and what I felt, which was very uneasy, is now confirmed. Again, it's nice to have an eyewitness to go there, but this story really needs to be gathered from countless scientists doing work over generations, and it needs to be a rational discussion. Not an emotional discussion, not a, well, wait a minute, not a political discussion. Maybe it does need to be an emotional discussion, but let's at least signal, let me tell you how I'm feeling, right? <laughs> rather than we're going to make policy based on that. Anywhere you go, whether you're just driving from the gallery to WVIA, you see things because you're an unequal perceiver. What was a, a grab you image that you saw? Maybe you didn't capture it this time with photography, but when you were there on your trip to Antarctica, what was one marvelous memory from this time? Um, I only got one image out of getting into the gullet that I'm really happy with. But as a sublime moment, where you're sailing through these channels of ice, it's a thin set of maze of channels, the first time we sailed through it, it felt like the clouds had come down, touched the ocean, and just frozen in place. We sailed through it for over three hours, and the light from the sun is bouncing in every direction. It was the first time I really felt transparent. It was such a white experience. So to be in the same location at the very end of the day, and to have this gorgeous 
pink color come up in the sky, bouncing again all different directions. It, you really felt like you were in a romantic painting. And so to be able to sail through, actually we saw more little Antarctic turns in, in that one location than it, at one time than we'd ever seen before. That, they were this lovely, beautiful, chirping accent through this extraordinary symphony of light. That, that was a truly magic couple of hours. And so I've got, you know, one or two images to testify for that. But really, it's the experience that is, is so extraordinary. The idea of the sublime, you used the word sublime, beyond beauty to wonder, awe, and almost terror, right? Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like some of the things that you might have experienced, maybe not this trip, but other trips, are sublime. Every single trip to Antarctica is an awesome experience. And I mean that in the traditional word, Antarctica puts the awe in awesome. There is uh, an extraordinary sense of finiteness, that this is such an old place and a long story, that we're so tiny, that these forces are so immense. I mean, winds that can blow me off my feet, winds that can blow the waterfalls back up the mountains. You know, like <laughs> rivers that can, you know, rivers of ice that can just crack and create Crystal tsunamis. I mean, it's extraordinary. So every single trip is, is, is a journey into that awesomeness. I think one of the things that really shifted so from the romantic notion, I think man for so long has felt at the mercy of this tooth and claw, very terrifying nature. And suddenly we find ourselves now in a new geologic era, finally titled the Anthropocene. And you have this other sense of what are we doing to nature? Sometimes it's hard to resist the notion that we're the problem and we want to be the solution. We may so many of us want to be the solution. So there's, there's this new rebalancing, this psychic rebalancing of how man fits into nature and what our, what our role and position in all of that is. And you are an artist who is helping us try to come to terms with that, as you can. Just then, you took us into the gullet with you. But the idea of going into the gullet, also going into ourselves. You have in this show landscapes within landscapes, right? And that's part of what we're going to experience. Before we head to the exhibition, though, it would be wonderful to ask you about Little John Paul and the creative atmosphere in which you grew up. You were surrounded by artists in your family. Yeah. And that gave you not just permission, but that's what you did as a human. That, yeah? Yeah, and also I, I realized my parents were a little different as well. In our family unit, only of three, we each functioned a little differently. It was more of a collection of individuals first and then, then a family second, I think. But uh, being able to travel and meet many of my father's colleagues, to watch my mother design many of the books like Georgia O'Keeffe's well, it was Alfred Siegel's portrait of George O'Keeffe, but I keep thinking of it as O'Keeffe's book for obvious reasons. To meet so many different people doing so many different things was really a wonderful education in the creative life and how everybody's life reflects their art. Their art reflects their life. They're in, interchangeable. They, they, one changes the other. And, and in engaging in any kind of art, you change your life as well which is one of the things that I hope people will take away from this exhibit as we're highlighting not only landscapes within landscapes, which is us, and every photograph is both a mirror and a window, but also process how these things came through. As you change your process, you change your way of being. It's a way of being first and then secondarily a way of seeing or a way of listening or a way of the process changes the, the result. So 
everyone is creative to one degree or another. The question is, how do you want to be creative and what are you looking for? And creativity is something that as we travel with you on your website or travel with you to Antarctica, the sense of creativity as being critical, it's always critical because it's part of who we are, but critical now that we open our eyes and really see. And maybe we should broaden the notion of seeing to perceiving, because that could be hearing, touching, and all the rest. I'm particularly sensitive to listening because of working in radio. But you're reminding us and guiding us to really relate to what's around us. Think about the Mad Hatter and his pocket watch. We're always so much in a hurry these days. As we know, we often take so much for granted. Absolutely. I mean, you give one of the greatest gifts that uh, anyone can give is to really take the time and to listen. And the, the second way of looking at that is to look. I see you. You know, this this is really important. And do we give that gift to ourselves? Do we need somebody else to give that to us? I mean, it's wonderful, but we also should make some time and space to do it ourselves. Uh, I, th- I think it's important to remember the the root word of amateur, ama to do something for the love of doing something. This whole professional, non-professional gets in the way of our very spiritual foundation of our being in this culture. And we all are creative. And it's really just the expectations we have for that. And sometimes, honestly, as a professional, we, we put such high expectations on our creative life that we kind of squeeze the life out of it. <laughs> and so there's times where we all need to have something that we're amateurs at. I, I play music at 2 o'clock in the morning when I can't offend anybody else. Nobody else is listening. I can just be free. Guitar what? Piano, yeah. And it's improvisation? Yeah, I mean, I had a little bit of classical training, just enough to be able to read some sheet music. But it's really just exploring sound. And really, it's exploring emotion when you're there. So we can get very um, sophisticated and overthink our processes. And that sometimes kicks us out of flow. And so sometimes when you have more limited means but are just simply doing something for the love of doing something, you can enter back into that flow state. And for me, that's a reminder of of a quality to look for when I'm engaging in something more professionally. And you were nodding, Heather. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I I was talking to John Paul earlier about even just myself as a creative. I'm a performance artist, but I'm finishing up my first writing class that I'm taking. And it's not necessarily meant for anyone other than a different outlet for me, a way, a new outlet for me, a fresh outlet, not one that has tried and true results, you know. So this is allowing me to really get me thinking again and really stretch out what my skills are. It's been a lot of fun. And especially coming from someone who is an academic writer, and now I'm more exploring creative writing going to make a prediction. It's going to change her process. <laughs> She's going to be a different artist <laughs> in short time because of this. I know that writing has changed the way that this exhibit has come on. There are four poems on the wall, and it's changed the way that I speak about my work as well. Much less think about it, feel about it. You know those tight little artist statements? I, I think I finally found a sledgehammer or a crowbar or something to open up some space for a more emotive response and Isn't that important? Make space for emotion and art. 
<laughs> Let's talk about space because space is critical. You're inviting us into the spaces that you create, whether they be in a poem or whether they be a visual image of 2D, 3D, hmm. and the landscapes within landscapes. But this sense of the between and it's the old Descartes, you know, body, mind, objects out there. But that's not the way you experience land or life or your relationships with others, do you, at all? You know? Not at all. It's one of the reasons why I don't title my photographs a place and a date. It's so materialistic. It's so object-oriented and fixed. All of my series are titled based on a process, illumination, reflection. I could keep going. Uh, I want to highlight that ongoing process. Part of what you're alluding to is, is this notion that the viewing experience is a reperformance of, a reenactment of, a revitalization of the art object. Alfred Stieglitz, the great modernist photographer, was talking about the unequivalent experience that the viewer has. And so every viewing is unique. It breathes new life in, just like you might play a piece of Bach, but you would play it entirely differently than I would play it, than Heather would play it. And that would be wonderful. Wouldn't it be a kind of richer, more wonderful world? So I'm really excited about this notion of ekphrastic writing where we can start to share some of our internal responses with all of that. And we say, oh, how did you interpret it? What did it do for you? And how did you approach it? Because it democratizes that conversation about art, which I think has gotten far too stiff. There, there is some mass disquisitional prolixity up with which we should not put. Don't even bother looking it up unless you have fun with language. It, it's, let's endeavor to eschew obfuscation. Keep it simple. Right. Maybe we keep it honest. Maybe we keep it authentic. Maybe we signal people, well, this is the way I feel about something, or you know, I've been thinking about this, or I'm actually going to make a logical argument for something here. You know, tell me what you think. You know, those are very different kinds of conversations to have. And I see time and time again we slip in between them, not knowing which pond we've stepped into, and things get kind of tangled. I think it can be a richer, clearer discussion that we'll get more out of the whole experience if we if we triangulate. Um, I've come to understand some of my pieces more because of what people have shared about them. The comments that some people have made about certain things have confirmed that I've succeeded, or, and they've also given me whole new ideas. Like, oh, I should go in that direction too. That, that sense of exchange can be really vital, uh, not just between viewers, but between viewer and artist and curator and anybody who's involved in the process. It's a conversation. Art is about communication. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street, at least. Hopefully it's more. And you've tracked down this many photographers, and you've had conversations with them, and they are now preserved at the Georgia Eastman collection because that give and take, that flow, and what is most likely larger than the sum of you individuals and your work. Exactly right. It's exactly what you alluded to before, the, the power of listening and that kind of deep listening. So when artist talks to artist. There's a foundation when friend talks to friend. Uh, there's another foundation. And then when you provide a space to really be heard, you can go to places that you normally don't go. I, I find that countless times. And ironically, even with some close friends who I've known for decades, when we sit down to create something for publication, then it kind of gives them permission to, oh, let me talk about myself for an hour. <laughs> oh, you really are. And we, we've got to get it right. Let's get it good. Let's go deep. It's, it's wonderful for me, too. I end up having conversations with friends I've known for decades that I wouldn't have had otherwise, and, and they're absolutely wonderful. I mean, small talk I, up to a certain point, but I'd rather just 
step outside and listen to the wind in the trees or have a deep conversation. There are images that look to me as if I had seen a chambered nautilus Mm. or some scalar wave. So you're aware of that part of the world, too, that the underpinnings, the Fibonacci numbers and so forth, that that's a beauty, too, isn't it? Extraordinary. I mean, sacred geometry is absolutely fascinating. And it's just the geometry of life is extraordinary. Look at fractals. I was really influenced as a young man by uh, Elliot Porter's work. And I always felt that he saw a different kind of order in nature beyond circles, triangles, and squares. You know, the stuff that Galileo talked about. But we didn't have a word for it. And then later, I felt vindicated when he collaborated with James Glick to create the book Nature's Chaos. Here was this new language, these fractal algorithms, essentially, that had been around since the Middle Ages, but we needed computers to actually solve them because it would take a man an entire lifetime to iterate one equation. Now suddenly computers could do that. And we saw this whole new uh, structure, this whole new order in nature. And they were used in so many things, from special effects in Steven Spielberg movies to understanding the structure of galaxies. It's a very exciting time to be around. So yes, uh, that sense of deep order in nature and that there is an, an extraordinary kind of beauty in science. There's, there's immense creativity there. Uh, and, and that is certainly a, a wellspring of inspiration for me. And you are not just microscopic, not just cosmic in your interests in the imagery, the places you take us. We might see an image and it evokes interstellar space or what we might think of as what it might be like to enter a galaxy (laughs) or the teensy weensy but scale so often artists work large or they work small but you because of your medium or your media you can take us into all those places and spaces and inside ourself infinitely right and each one of those is just a different perspective on a continuum so you know when carl sagan says we're stardust I'm always fascinated by some of the limits of perception. I look at a blue sky and I constantly remind myself there are stars behind that. (laughs) This whole notion of seeing is believing. In a way, some of the stars that we see, they're so old, we're just seeing the light. They don't exist anymore. Wait a minute. Uh, There's so many beautiful poetic mysteries to being in this extraordinary world. And I, I think one of the biggest gifts is to recognize that we're a part of that. This This notion we keep talking about nature is it. If there were one thing that I could do with my work, it would be to cross out it and replace that with some kind of word that would suggest we. When, when you step back, actually Robin Wall Kimmerer, beautiful writer, biologist, proposes this word key. Okay, uh, if, if it can be widely adopted, the problem with making up your own word is it needs to be widely adopted to be useful. But I, 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 let's get behind Robin <laughs> and, and, and try key. Let's get to that notion that we're not separate from land. We are a part of land, that we are nature, being nature. And in fact, so many times the scientists will say that, that we're the consciousness in nature. This again, back to Carl Sagan, that we're the universe witnessing the universe. When, when you find yourself in that space and you think, oh, I'm also the galaxy. Oh, I'm also the wave. Oh, I'm also this land. I'm eating it. The water is flowing through. I'm breathing it. I'm exchanging it. I'm leaving parts of myself behind. I'm not separate from this miracle universe. When you, when you look at how wonderful it is and say, I'm a piece of this, it's kind of breathtaking in a good way. Oh. Uh-uh. Or just, 
Heather, are you saying ah and oh and what what do you... (laughs) I always have with his work. You know, one of the treats that I have in running the Sordoni is that when you unpack a show, it's like Christmas morning. Like, oh my gosh, seeing a, a piece of artwork in person is really different than seeing it in an image. And you can't change that, you know? It's really different to come into the space and see how it's organized and look at the scale of the works and the depth of the works, the luminosity in the works. I mean, some of John Paul's works just glow and it's really moving to see his work in that manner. And then also as you move through the space, you come upon some of his writing. You know, there are poems that he has created that some published before, some created for this exhibition. So debuting right here at the Sordoni. So you're really able to see the mindset of John Paul, especially as you look at landscapes within landscapes. But as you proceed through the space, you come to another very special exhibition, and that one's called Process. Process is really looking at how he got there, how he created the works that you are seeing in the front two spaces of the gallery. It's not just starting off with an image. It's starting off with a concept. It's starting off with color. It's starting off with all of these other aspects before it becomes art. And that's a very exciting thing that I think we're bringing to the space right now. You're not only seeing finished work, you're seeing how the work got there. That's a very special reason why to come to the Sordoni now. And we learn about your process that it's high tech, the highest tech, and the lowest tech. You draw. You draw. A lot of teachers of art who sit at this table bemoan the fact that students don't study drawing any longer, and you draw still. Yeah, I've spent my whole life drawing. In fact, I started drawing before I could talk and almost got my parents kicked out of our apartment in Dublin when I was two or three. Because? I I took up mural making. The landlord wasn't very happy. (laughs) So my parents put blocks of paper in every room. They paper trained me. I said, hey, kid, on the paper, not on the wall. We got it straight. I never stopped drawing. And I studied drawing for a long time because I wanted to be able to bring these images in my mind's eye into clear perspective. I wanted to be able to share them with other people, I wanted to be able to live with them a little longer for myself as well. So that's why when Photoshop came around, actually in the 70s, I saw a mom overseeing the production of Ellie Porter's Intimate Landscapes book, and they were using Cytex machines to do the color separation. When I saw that they could change green into purple, that they could change the proportion of an object, they could take one object, triplicate it, and twirl it around, I, I want one of those. But mom said they were million-dollar coloring books. <laughs> How am I going to get my hands on a million dollars? Well, in the early 90s, there was a Macintosh and Photoshop, and I needed a second mortgage to afford my drum scanner, but I did. And I got my, you know, remember, remember that kid story, George and the Purple Crayon? Still my favorite. A little kid who draws reality. Okay, well, Photoshop. And the thing that's marvelous is that you've been cited and given awards for your explorations technologically, technically, technologically. But when we see what you've written about such marvels, it's a tool. And it allows you to do things and maybe go places where you hadn't been with your purple crayon solely. And that that allows you again to explore more deeply and develop and question more richly. Yeah. As a painter, it gives me more control over color. I can try many more things very quickly. Uh, As a draftsman, it allows me to change proportion with a slider. I mean, back and forth, thinner, El Greco, Botero, El Greco, Botero, 
wherever you want to go there. <laughs> so many things can be, you can pretty much do anything you can imagine, and then you just got to get out there and get the material to do it with. And it's just going to get even more interesting with AI coming down the pike. Something I've stayed away from for the moment. It's probably going to be a deep dive this summer. And I kind of want to backstep the beautiful journey that Heather has curated in this space. It's not just a collection of objects. It's also the space and it's the journey that you make through it. Highlights that art is really an event more than it is a physical artifact or a product. And that event is reawakened through each experience and carried to other places and other experiences through their viewers. Writing may be one way of sharing, and it doesn't even have to be writing. It could be spoken word, right? So the conversations that people have about this, if they allow themselves to get real, get raw, be more authentic, be daring, share some of that creative kid stuff that as adults you know, behave, you know, it's supposed to be that crazy. You're awfully imaginative, aren't you? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> Go ahead and have those conversations. Wouldn't it be a more interesting life? And isn't that what art is about, celebrating life? We do need to be vulnerable before work, and that's a scary thing in this world. It's true. Uh, but, you know, you can keep it to yourself and have that experience. But even then, we still feel vulnerable. I think, the, you know, people speak so much about the vulnerability an artist goes through when they share their work. They subject themselves to external criticism. But I think the real vulnerability all along is that to make that artwork, you have to really be open and you have to be uh, not just risk, but embrace change. That's real vulnerability. That also happens for the viewer as well, as they kind of open up and say, what, what am I really feeling? What conclusions would I draw from this? It's not always easy. Wait, what are you going to do instead? Just sit on the surface? Live somebody else's life? More ideas? Uh, the openness is so rewarding. And again, we can choose whether we have a private experience and keep it to ourselves, a journal, or whether we do want to go public with some of this and how we'd like to go public. Maybe we want to write something. Maybe we want to do something like a performance like Heather was talking about. Maybe we want to make music. There's so many ways of responding, kind of sharing that spark. I, I think that's really what it's about. It's about striking sparks, hopefully fanning other people's flames and they strike more sparks. We spoke earlier about the sublime. What about beauty? Don't we get nourished by beauty? We absolutely get nourished by beauty, right? And it's been celebrated for a long time. Of course, Plato said, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. So when we talked about some of those fractal algorithms or those Fibonacci series, that's another kind of beauty. But I think if we recognize an authentic experience that we're having and, and we look at something in a, a less conventional way, and really look at something directly and let it in, it's it's that breathtaking state that is the real beauty. Um, I always like to look at a performance artist, like I say a musician, and watch when they get into that state of flow. I mean, the music is beautiful, but the fact that they are in that state of flow, that to me, that's what's really beautiful. And I think every experience with any kind of expression, art in general, in the largest, grandest sense, takes you into a transcendent moment where hopefully it does catch your breath or at least changes your breathing. And you also enter into, if not that flow, then your flow. That, that's when you are being beautiful. And, and I think it does track back to the Navajo idea of walking the earth in a beautiful way, walking the beauty way. There isn't just one path, the beauty way. It's a way of being, and you can carry it with you wherever you go.
internationally celebrated photographer John Paul Capenegro with Heatherson Cabbage, director of the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, visiting the WVIA studios in connection with the current exhibition in two parts at the Sordoni Gallery, Landscapes Within Landscapes and Process, running now through May 13th at the Gallery, 141 South Main Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre. John Paul's work has been exhibited internationally. His works have been purchased by private and public collections, the Estee Lauder Collection, Princeton University, the Smithsonian Institution. He is a pioneer among visual artists working with digital media. He consults with the corporations that build the tools he uses, including Adobe, Apple, Canon, Kodak, and Sony. He is a member of the Photoshop Hall of Fame, Epson's Stylus Prose, and X-Rite's Colorati. His work is published widely in periodicals and books, including Art News and the Ansel Adams Guide. He is a highly sought-after lecturer, and he leads adventures in the wildest places on Earth to help participants creatively make deeper connections with nature and with themselves. For more information about John Paul, you can visit his website, and that is johnpaulcaponigro.com, and that's C-A-P-O-N-I-G-R-O, johnpaulcaponigro.com. And to learn more about this exhibition and how you can see it at the Sordoni Art Gallery, wilkes.edu, Sordoni Art Gallery, S-O-R-D-O-N-I, Sordoni Art Gallery. As it happens, there are a number of events planned in connection with this show. Tomorrow, in fact, at noon, it's a program titled Landscape Building, and it's part of the Second Saturday Family Hour series. Participants will be able to create their own 3D landscapes made of mountains, trees, rivers, and whatever else, and there will be a story time at 1 o'clock. On Friday, April 14th, one week from today, at 1 p.m., it's the Art of Ohm, a sound bath with Michelle Smith and Lorraine Elick, and you can experience the sounds and vibrations of Tibetan singing bowls in the course of that workshop. And on Tuesday, April 18th, Art in Context, a presentation titled Glaciers in Pennsylvania, Evidence from Geological Mapping and Lake Sediments by Dr. Matthew Finkenbender. And that's all part of the activities in connection with landscapes within landscapes and process. Now through May 13th at the Sordoni Art Gallery, 141 South Main Street in downtown Wilkes-Barre. For more information on the web, wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery. Thank you.